Judith Bryan, I'm really delighted to welcome you. Thank you for your time today. You've got quite a reputation for being an author, for being a poet. You're an academic, but you were a social worker. Should we just start really at the beginning and like tell our listeners about a little bit about your journey? How do you go from being a social worker to an academic senior lecturer at the University of Roehampton, I think it is? That's right. Thank you, Miranda. Um, it's wonderful to talk to you this afternoon. So let me see. I was in writing groups for a number of years and was always kind of committed to writing and have tried various ways to develop my craft, you know, take courses and so on and so forth. And really after Birded and the Cloth Monkey was published, I was approached by various people to do readings and that went from, you know, doing a reading to running a workshop to running courses. So I gradually built up a, a bit of a profile, a bit of a CV rather, teaching creative writing. Before that, as you say, I was a social worker. So there was a, a set of transferable skills that I took from social work people facing into teaching, which is people facing. And I'd also done some visual arts workshops in uh, museums in, in Greenwich and you know in other places in London so I had those kind of teaching people facing skills. You mentioned there the book now just for our listeners who maybe don't know about it Bernard and the Cloth Monkey is the winner of the Saga Prize. Tell our listeners just a little bit about Bernard and the Cloth Monkey and then we'll go back to talk a little bit more about you. Well, the novel is very much inspired by my work as a social worker. It's about a very dysfunctional family. And as a social worker, I was very kind of interested in the idea of, you know, family dynamics and family dysfunction. And one of the things that came up in my training was this idea of a kind of cycle of deprivation and the, the sense that troubled families went on to make more troubled families. And I, I wasn't very comfortable with this idea. You know, as, as, as a person, as a human being, you know, part of families ourselves, we see families around us. And it didn't seem quite true to me that there was this kind of um, almost inevitable cycle that if you have a troubled childhood, that, you know, you're then doomed and your children are doomed. And really, that's what I set out to explore in the novel. So it concerns two sisters coming together after the death of their father. Their mother has gone off on a, a cruise with a friend to get over this intense period. She's had to look it after a sick husband who's, who's then died. And so the, the daughters are in the house together and forced to kind of come to terms with their past and to consider what created their relationship, what created their family dynamics and where they're going to go from, from there. So it's really a, a, an opportunity for me. I think writing is, is often an opportunity for the writer to explore things that trouble them, that kind of concern them, that we're not sure what the answers are. And through writing, we kind of work out where we stand on things and what we feel about things. And so, yes, I explored this relationship between these two sisters. And did you find any kind of conclusions from that? Yes. Yeah, my conclusion was really is, is that we have choices as adults. We can review and reframe our past or we can move away from some aspects of it, although they may haunt us. And so, yeah, that, that's, that's, what I, that's what I ended up with. And I feel that, I hope that that is conveyed through the narrative, that there is this aspect of, of choice. Not entirely, of course, you know, there is you know, psychology and there's trauma, but there is this sense that you know, we have an opportunity to, to review and revisit the past as adults and to make decisions about where we want to go in the future. And it is about breaking that cycle, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 
Yeah, and I guess through your work, you mentioned that you must have seen quite a lot of that. So was there a lot of real life inspiration in the book? Yes, I mean, very often the book is read as autobiography, and it isn't, but it is drawn from life. It's drawn from a composite of my experience, other people's experiences, the experiences of um, people that I've worked with, and a kind of, you know, ideas, social work ideas, psychology, that helped me shape who these characters were and who they could be. And how long did it take you to write the book? And how sort of invested do you feel with the characters? I mean, what I'm thinking of, I know this sounds a bit weird, but if I watch a series like and I binge watch it back to back, yeah. then I suddenly, I'm, I'm like, I'm dreaming about the characters. You know, they come part of my life almost. And surely as a writer, you must experience something similar? Yes, I, I think it's essential as a writer for your characters to become real. So for me, it is, this, it is as if these sisters exist. There is a world, it's just contained within these paper covers. And yes, you, you know, dream about it. Things pop into your head while you're doing you know, banal things like washing up. Initially, well, I, I started a couple of chapters and didn't get very far. I was working full-time as a social worker and then I became a mother. And you know, the first couple of chapters, I, I just didn't really have the headspace for doing more than that. But I received some positive feedback and decided that I did want to kind of continue and took a sabbatical from my social work. Intended to go back and never, never went back, not to that particular job. So... I, I kind of knew, I knew that I needed to take the time to immerse myself in it yeah. and to kind of work out what it is I was writing and, and how I was going to tell this story. Once I took the time, I probably had a good draft within a year and then had to redraft a few times before I submitted it to the Saga Prize. And then on winning it, they gave me a further nine months for redrafts. But the, the initial you know, bulk of the work uh, was less than a year and so it was a very intensive period and lots of I, I had to sleep with a notebook under my pillow <laughs> so that I could you know get up in the night and write things down without waking up too much. That's fascinating how the process works that you did really have to immerse yourself yes. into it and, and withdraw from other aspects of your yes. life to be able to get into those characters. Can yes. I ask what is a cloth monkey because I googled it and yes. I, I just want to know what you think of as a cloth monkey. Right. Well, the title comes from a series of experiments that were carried out, carried out in America, whereby behaviorist psychologists experimented with attachment. There was a, a wire monkey that was fitted with teats so the babies could cling to this wire monkey and, and drink milk. And there was a cloth monkey that didn't have any teats. And the, the experiment was the baby's going to be drawn to the monkey that can nourish them with food or are they going to want to have something that feels like, you know, comfort, the softness of the cloth monkey? And in the experiments, the, the babies would go to the wire monkey for, for the milk and then would spend most of their time with the cloth monkey. The nurturing, the illusion of mothering was more important to them than... The, yeah, the necessity yeah. of yeah. food. Fascinating, yeah. but slightly horrific. All at once, yes. isn't it? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I acknowledge this in the book that, you know, it's a horrific experiment. It's cruel. It's yeah. a stupid experiment because you kind of, if you look at human beings, you know that that's the case. If you look at animals, you would know that that's the case, that 
everything that lives needs that sense of comfort, needs nurturing. And that is as true in the animal kingdom as it is in the human world. But this was, you know, at a time when people were still beginning to try to make sense of what happens to children who are separated from their parents or what happens to children who receive less than adequate parenting. So it was an important set of experiments at the time in order for them to come to what seems to us now a very obvious conclusion. So in the novel, The Cloth Monkey is a mother who is not brilliant by any means, but she, you know, she's there, she's present, and the children are able to get some support from her, some comfort from her. Therefore, they're not going to be as horrendously damaged as they fear they're going to be. How important is it, do you think, for children to stay within their family unit, even if it is dysfunctional? I know going back generations, you know, a lot of black families were split up. How detrimental do you think that is and how important is it, do you think, that families should stay together? Oh, I think that's such a difficult question. Um, (laughs) And I think that... I think every that case thinking, is different, I guess. Isn't absolutely, it? absolutely. Yeah. And I think that the thinking changes on on that over the years. So I think the attitude now is quite different to when I was a social worker. But I think the the, the thing that I find saddening is that social work is so desperately under resourced, which means that people aren't really given the time and the space to make individual very personal decisions as much as they would like I think and so they are kind of led by targets they're led by limited resources they're led by you know government ideologies which change as well and so I think the kind of the very sophisticated childcare service that many social workers wish we could have whereby you would really take time with families and give them everything to be able to stay together where it was in the best interest of the child sometimes that is just just isn't possible there are the resources there And I think that that's a shame. Well, this book is part of a series that Penguin are launching a landmark new series of lost or hard to find books now rediscovered by black writers who wrote about Black Britain and the diaspora across the last century. And it's been created by Bernadine Evaristo. How excited are you to be part of this? (laughs) Absolutely (laughs) over the moon. Um, I'm, I'm thrilled. It's the gift that keeps on giving. So I found out about this in April last year and... I don't think I've stopped smiling about it ever since. It's tremendously important for me and for the other writers uh, chosen in the series to be part of this kind of, you know, landmark inaugural series. There are going to be more. There are going to be non-fiction books as well. And I think Penguin is hoping that this will be a long-running series, just like Heinemann African Writers. Yes, it, it, it means such a lot to be seen and to be remembered and to be given another shot, really. Yeah, Yeah, no, it's amazing. I, on next week's show, we're going to be speaking to Caleb Nelson, who's written Open Waters. So oh. hopefully we're going to feature a lot of black writers over the next coming weeks and months. So Bernadine said in her own words, our ambition is to correct historic bias in British publishing and bring a wealth of lost writing back into circulation. Do you feel that there has been a lot that's been lost or forgotten or was never even given a platform? Um, Yes, I do. I I think that that's kind of unavoidable to come to that conclusion, really. I think publishing, like with many industries, you know, it's a business and people make decisions about what they think is going to be kind of commercially viable, what is going to be of of interest to readers. And it's not necessarily about, or always going to be about, you know, this person is, you know, hugely talented, you know, there are better writers than me who've had three or four or five books published and then still disappear. 
So it's a very kind of fluid industry as well. People do rise and fall. There's a huge amount which is published every year, I think. And I think for authors to kind of get their kind of head above the water of all this stuff which is coming out, it takes a lot of publicity. It takes, you know, marketing resources. And sometimes that, that those aren't necessarily available. I think that's something that Penguin are really addressing with this series, the, the campaign around it, the marketing brilliant and that's what's needed to get work in front of people to keep creating those kind of opportunities where there is talent to have a heavyweight like penguin behind it is is incredible so just to clarify for our listeners penguin have published a, a book of black writing in britain and judith's novel is part of that there's just something that i found that you said that you attribute the absence of cultural links between Britain and the Caribbean as a cause for a feeling of displacement and Mm. believe a sense of unbelonging is an influence in becoming a writer. Can you just explain a little bit more about what you mean by that? Yeah, well, for me, as a young writer, as I was once, (laughs) um, I was reading a lot of African-American writing, uh, specifically African-American women writers in the 80s and 90s, and also some Caribbean writers. And I kind of wondered where I was as a black British person. I didn't see myself reflected in, in the pages of literature. It was either those American or the, or the Caribbean experiences that I was seeing represented. And that kind of made me wonder whether I had a, a right to say anything at all, whether I had anything of relevance to say to anybody. And it kind of made me feel outside of you know, British culture, outside of what I was trying to understand of as, as black culture. And that I suppose I kind of wrote to, to try to create a, a space for myself on the page. And of course, it's not that work wasn't there, but it wasn't as readily available, perhaps, as the African-American and the, and the Caribbean voices, which shaped me so much as, as a writer. So, yeah, I, I write to kind of create a, a mirror for myself on the page and hopefully for other black British readers. And that's why for me, it's so wonderful to see this this renaissance, really, of Black British writing with work by Oyinkan Braithwaite, Sarah Collins, and now Caleb. This range of narratives which reflect in different ways and in different, you know, different eras that that British experience. It's wonderful. Yeah, it is an incredible platform of writers. Judith, would you honour us by reading an excerpt from Bernard and the Cloth Monkey? Yes, gladly, Miranda. This extract is about three minutes long, and it's a a section in the novel where I'm talking about the family's relationship and attitude towards money. Thriftiness is next to godliness. Money doesn't grow on trees, but if you look after the pennies, the pounds will look after themselves. Tomorrow is another day. Always put something aside for a rainy day, because mother has, father has, God bless the child that has its own. Between them, mummy and daddy had the whole patter on money and the importance thereof. But it was daddy who provided the object lesson. On the first Saturday of every month, he sent one of the girls to the Builder Society on the Broadway to deposit his savings check. It was always a check, never cash, ready crossed and made over to Mr. Moore so it would be of no use to anybody if it were lost. Great trust and responsibility were bestowed upon the carrier of the savings check, and he expected it to be discharged with dignity and sobriety. Daddy knew that the second they were out of that front door, the girls were liable to run amok, carrying on 
up and down the street, skinning up their teeth, making noise, and generally making a show of themselves. That's why he never let them go together. It was a solitary task, so all the more a privilege. The Savings book had a soft cover in dark rows with gold and black lettering on the front. The cover was made of some strong light material, halfway between paper and cloth. It didn't tear easily, but it was wearing at the edges. Black fingerprint smudges had etched their way into the crosshatch of textured lines that made up the fabric. They wouldn't yield to mummy's efforts with a damp cloth. It became part of the ritual to wash your hands thoroughly in warm soapy water before the handing over of the book. Inside were a dozen pages of pale green paper. Each side of each sheet was marked out in columns and rows. Each row was numbered so you could calculate at a glance how many months you've been saving for, multiply it by the sum of your savings check, and cross-check your calculation against the society's entry in the book. This was a nice bit of mental arithmetic to do when you got back from the Broadway. It was best to work it out on the way home because Daddy expected to get the answer as soon as he opened the front door. You couldn't just quote the figure lately entered in the credit column in the Builder Society's thin red ink. You had to show exactly how you'd arrived at your answer, plus interest and minus withdrawals, of course. Except that there never were any withdrawals. Daddy saved a regular sum each month, varied every three years or so, first £8, then £12, then £20. It seemed a great deal to a child compared to a pound a week pocket money rising to £2 at age 13 and ended abruptly with your first Saturday job, aged 14 and a half. Although, as Daddy pointed out, he had to work outrageously hard for his money, while the girls only had to act the fool. Taking turns to visit the BS, the Builder Society, plus a dozen other lessons, would eventually cure them of all that. The BS was housed in a bay-windowed shop front between the dry cleaners and the chemists. It was part estate agency, part solicitor's office, insurance brokerage and savings bank. It was locked in a time warp at around the 1950s. There were rarely any other customers. The wooden door was a peeling dirty white. In one window hung metal frames with photographs of homes for sale. They were never changed, they just got paler and paler. In the other window was a dusty sign hung on a rusty chain. H, Bagshot and Jolly. Nothing else, no clue as to their role or their function. A sour-faced young man with unwashed hair served them. He scowled when the brass bell over the door announced the arrival of a customer. He snatched the book suspiciously from them, as if they might have stolen it. He squinted at the cheque, left the bearer of the book standing in the middle of the carpet while he held a whispered conversation with a hidden colleague. Then he would reappear and grudgingly enter a new figure in the book with a stuttering ink pen. He had to be jolly. Bagshot, Helena, Hermione, Hildegard, was surely the plump, rosy-cheeked motherly woman who greeted them with a smile, offered them a seat, commented every single time there was a nice tidy sum building up. Whatever would their father do with all that money? and wiped her hands on her skirt if she accidentally touched them during the handing over of the book. Thank you so much. It's really powerful how you use description, like how you describe the savings book, that detail of something which, you know, you really wouldn't think much of otherwise. 
and the sour-faced man with the unwashed hair. I mean, immediately you're you're revolted by him. For me, one of the pleasures of writing is description and, and that kind of forensic eye that notices everything. And of course, you can't sustain that through the whole of a narrative. But I like to kind of zone in on those on those moments like a camera lens, just seeing everything and you know, underneath that is the kind of, a, there's this kind of subtext of, of symbolism that I hope is also kind of working in, in the description. Well, yeah, and like the lady not, you know, being all so friendly and smiley, rosy face, yet when she touches them, she wipes her hands, things like that. And then you mentioned there, it's like a camera eye, but then how, you know, if you were to turn this into a film, how would you get that kind of symbolism in such a descriptive way, if that makes sense? Yeah, and, and for me, this is why I love literature. I mean, I love film. I really, really love film. But whenever I see a film of a book, I'm always left thinking the book did it better. As a reader, there's so much that you can imagine. You could transform every word into an image. Whereas with a film, it's almost like you've just got the flat image and you as a, as a viewer, there's a little less room for interpretation. You're being told what to see. It's the power of your imagination, isn't it? Which is actually why I love radio so much as well, because of people get to imagine and fill in all the gaps that they don't see, which is usually why people are really disappointed when they meet me. Because <laughs> I'm not what they thought. <laughs> Listening to stories on the radio as a child was one of yeah. my great loves. Radio 4 has always been brilliant for, you know, dramatizations and yeah. stories read aloud. And I vividly remember you know, feeling unable to do anything just the days before podcasts because I just had to stop and hear what was happening in a way. You know, I'd be on my way out at a task to do, some, some job to do or whatever. And I just had to hear the end of this drama because it completely captures you. I really? love that. That's the sign of a really good radio for me is when I can't get out the car, when I'm yeah. sat in the car outside the house or, you know, or wherever. And I'm like, no, I've got to hear the rest of yeah. this. Judith, it's been such a privilege and pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure also, Miranda. Thank you for having me.